This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. In 2008, Jacqueline Demaray was turning 80. So her husband, Paul, decided to throw a little party in her honor. Now, Paul and Jackie had been married for six decades, and like any devoted husband, he wanted to make sure that her birthday was special, unique. So he got to work. Now, to throw a good party, there's a few essential elements you've got to nail. First, there's the location. And Paul Demaray had just the place in mind. Since the 70s, Paul had a little place in the Quebec countryside in an area outside of Quebec City. Sorry, I should rephrase that. Since the 70s, Paul had a big, very big place outside of Quebec City. It's in, in the middle of what, an area what's called Charlevoix. And when you drive by, you don't even know, except you see a, there's a, an entrance with a, a fence and a gate. It's something out of the 18th century France, you know. The domain they have there, I mean, you can see pictures of it. It's hard to get into the place. That's Robin Philpot. He's a journalist, the publisher of Baraka Books, a former PQ candidate, and the author of a recent book about Paul Desmarais. The estate is called Sagard. And a few years ago, the 75-square-kilometer domain was valued at around $50 million. And it really does have all the amenities any self-respecting billionaire would want. There's around 40 buildings, a heliport, a stable, an orchestral hall, a world-class golf course that Tiger Woods has played on, and even its own fire truck. In the garage, there's the Rolls-Royce that Pierre Trudeau once drove while Paul Desmarais sat in the back seat, giggling that this was the first time he'd ever been driven by a prime minister. And now, some people think that the mansion in the middle of Sagard is fashioned after Versailles, but no, no, no. It's based on a 16th century Venetian villa. Very different. So it's clear that Paul had the perfect location ready to go. Now, the next essential element for a birthday bash is the entertainment. Now, this must have been a tough one for Paul, because at Jackie's 60th birthday, Ella Fitzgerald performed. So how do you top the queen of jazz herself? Well, you bring in some of the world's most renowned opera singers to perform a theatrical history of Jackie's life. And you get them to sing a version of Michael Jackson's Beat It that includes a list of the various newspapers you own. La presse, le droit et le soleil, la tribune de Sherbrooke, le quotidien du Saguenay, nouvelle liste de Trois-Rivières, la voix de l'Est de Grand Bay, just beat it, beat it. But you wanna be bad, just beat it, beat it. And then to top it all off, you get an opera singer to perform a song by legendary entertainer Al Jolson. And I swear to you this next part is true. You have them do it in blackface while a picture of Jolson, also in blackface, hangs behind them. 
Jacqueline Demare, it turns out, has very fond memories of doing blackface as a child. My brother and I used to entertain, Manning is, used to entertain on Sunday mornings, because yeah, I was a great imitator in those days of Al Jolson, because that was a great era of Al Jolson, yes. remember? And so we used to do all these black on our faces and come down on Sunday mornings and sing all those California and all those songs from, from uh, Al Jolson's story. Okay, so the entertainment is clearly taken care of. The final, most important part of a birthday party, however, is of course the guests. And Paul Demaray, he's got an extensive Rolodex. Besides, Sigard has always been quite a draw. People from all over the world, politicians coming there, and they would all want to go there. Sigard has seen many eminent visitors in the past. You've got the business folks, your Thompsons and Mannixes and Bronfmans. Most of Quebec and Ottawa bigwigs have been through a few times at least. Then there's the royals, members of the British, Spanish, Saudi, and even the old Iranian royal families have all visited. Estee Lauder's been rumored to have made the trip, as have at least one American president, a French president, and a German chancellor. Unfortunately, not all of them could make it, but the guest list was still pretty good. Brian Mulrooney made it. He even got up to the mic to serenade the crowd. Charlie Rose was there. So was former Governor General Adrian Clarkson. Old enemies like Jean Chrétien and Lucien Bouchard, who once had a little tiff about whether or not to break up the country, were able to put their differences aside for the sake of a good party. Jean Charest, who was Quebec Premier back then, took time out of his busy schedule to be there. And of course, their good friend George H.W. Bush, the 41st President of the United States, got a front row seat. So why would all of these Canadian and global luminaries fly in to watch blackface opera in rural Quebec? And who is this family that brought them all together? For half a century, the Demarais have been by far the most powerful family in Canada. And no single man has had more influence in recent Canadian history than Paul Demarais. Sure, he was a billionaire, but he was far more than just that. His name was literally synonymous with power. He wasn't just a Laurentian elite, hell, he was the Laurentian emperor. Prime ministers and premiers were in his pocket, presidents of foreign countries credited their careers to him, multiple royal commissions were created just to counter his business maneuvers. And the Demarais, they're a dynasty that make other dynasties. So many of Canada's powerful families are tied directly to them. The Trudeaus, the Mulroonies, the Martins, the Rays, the Johnsons, all of them owe their political success in some way to the Demarais. But in English Canada, you'll rarely ever hear their names. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. The company most associated with Paul Demarais is appropriately named Power Corporation. Here's Robin Philpot again. He was probably the most powerful businessman in Canada. He had the ear of all the politicians at the federal level. Despite his influence, Paul Demarais was secretive. 
even though he was a media baron, he rarely ever spoke to the press. Many, many media journalists complained that they could never get an interview with him. He avoided it like the plague. Here's one of the few pieces of tape we could find of Paul Demaray Sr. speaking at a Power Corp annual shareholders meeting in 1980. For the first quarter of 1980, the consolidated earnings of Power Corporation are $25,513,000 compared to $12,358,000 last year. There are two myths that Anglo-Canadians will often hear about the Demarais if they hear anything at all. The first you'll find in crazy conspiracy videos about the Illuminati or the New World Order claiming that they're Canada's version of the Vanderbilts or the Rothschilds. It's Paul Demarais Jr. He's like the head Bilderberger uh, family in Montreal. And I was, everybody started yelling, Bilderberger, Bilderberger, and drove away. Then there's the kind of mythos you'll read in the business pages, or the one English-language biography of Paul Desmarais. Well, the myth is that he was a small-town French-Canadian who made good, that he was a great entrepreneur, that he built up this empire, and that he was a friend to politicians. The only truth to the myth is that he was very close to politicians. That without the help of the government, of the state, be it Quebec or the federal government, he would never have been had the empire that he created. And the idea that the man is a self-made man and that look what we can do and, and you become an entrepreneur, become rich, rags to riches, it's just hocus pocus. It's just totally false because without the doors being open for him, without the money that came from the government, he would have been any old businessman. There's a story from Paul Demarais' time at the University of Ottawa that I think helps explain him a little. Even at that time, Paul was interested in politics, but he never actually ran himself. Pierre Genet, one of Paul's roommates at the time who would eventually go on to work with him, told a reporter that, quote, he remained the man behind the scenes. Candidates who ran for office sort of had to get his blessing or they wouldn't get in. Paul Desmarais would go on to take that same strategy from the world of student politics and apply it to Quebec, Canada, and eventually even other countries. So how exactly did Paul Desmarais become the most powerful man in our country? Well, it all starts in Sudbury, Ontario. Paul Desmarais' grandfather, Noel, moved from Quebec to Sudbury in 1900. Sudbury was a frontier town where Anglos, Francos, and European immigrants were all settling next to the original indigenous inhabitants. Noel Desmarais and his children quickly became community leaders and got involved in numerous business ventures. And by the time Paul Desmarais was born in 1927, the Desmarais family was doing quite well. The truth is that he came from a very wealthy family, and he admitted it, that his grandfather was a wealthy, wealthy man. But Paul was growing up at a time when Francophones in Ontario were oppressed. He would have grown up in a situation in Ontario where there was tremendous discrimination against French. Ontario had outlawed teaching French, and xenophobia about Francophones moving into the province was prevalent. Canada is not a bilingual country. We have been led to believe that it is. How do you think of French Canadians? 
<laughs> as a group, as pea supers, frogs. Canadian, born Canadian, Protestant Canadians especially, should not cater to the Quebec French. The real fear in Canada was that the French population would soon outnumber the people of British origin. So he would have grown up in a situation of discrimination. The Demaray household was bilingual, royalist, and big believers in the Canadian project. Paul eventually went off to Ottawa and then Toronto to become a lawyer, but after he failed his legal exams for the third time, he decided to give business a go. The year was 1951, and this is where the legend of Paul Demaray really begins. His parents owned the Sudbury Bus Company. It was deeply in debt and they were looking to sell, and Paul convinced his parents to sell it to him for one dollar. By all accounts, he engrossed himself in the work and borrowed money from anyone and everyone to keep the business afloat. He finally struck a deal with the local nickel mine, which was at the end of one of his routes. They needed their workers to get there on time, so he convinced them to pay $138,000 to keep the line running. It was a genius move, and within five years, the company was profitable. Paul married Jackie and used the money he'd earned from the Sudbury Bus Company to buy Gatineau bus lines outside of Ottawa in 1955. He again made a profit, sold the company, and then set his eyes on a bigger prize, Quebec Autobus. And that's when he first had his brush with real politics. If he wanted to buy Quebec Autobus, he first had to get the approval of Quebec's longtime premier, Maurice Duplessis. Duplessis ruled the province as a demagogue and an authoritarian Quebec nationalist. Quebec City, as you know, is the cradle of civilization and Christianity, not only in Canada, the old North American continent. And though Demaray was a francophone, to Duplessis, he was still an outsider. The two met, and Duplessis approved the sale on one condition. Quote, if you guarantee that my civil servants arrive on time, I'll grant you your bus line. Duplessis died that same year, but Paul Demaray learned an important lesson. To get what he wanted, he needed direct contact with the man in charge. The next few years were a whirlwind. He moved to Montreal, bought more bus companies, and kept looking for business opportunities. At the time, Montreal was Canada's commercial capital, but Anglos controlled almost all of the major businesses. But Demaray was able to find a francophone mentor. He came under the wings of a, a very important financial man who was originally from New Brunswick, a guy named Jean-Louis Lévesque. Jean-Louis Lévesque saw Paul Demaray as somebody like himself, and he helped him along a lot. Demaray invested his profits into Montreal Trust, a blue-chip financial firm. He was appointed to the board, the only francophone on it. And Paul Demaray kept making money and kept buying stakes in more companies. By this point, Demaray had charmed his way into both the Anglo and Franco business circles in Montreal. Though he had a seat at the table, he was still viewed as an upstart. Then Paul Demaray made two moves that would quickly make him one of the most powerful men in the country. First, he started buying up newspapers in Sherbrooke, Trois-Rivières, and Granby, and finally, he bought La Presse, the single most important paper in the province. And then a year later, he took over Power Corporation, a holding company that had investments in some of the most important businesses in Canada. By 1968, 17 years after he'd taken over a small bus company in Sudbury, 
Paul Desmarais was a full-fledged member of the Canadian elite. When Paul Desmarais took over Power Corporation, it owned major stakes in some of the biggest companies in Canadian industry. There was Dominion Glass, Canada Steamship Lines, Laurentide Financial, and Consolidated Bathurst. That last one was the biggest pulp and paper manufacturer in Quebec. He used to make jokes, you know, he would go to these economic summits, there would be people demonstrating there. So he would say, well, this is all fine for me because if they demonstrate, they got to rent our buses to get to the demonstration. And if they end up breaking the windows, well, they got to buy glass from Dominion Glass, which is my company. He controlled so much at the time. He really had control of industry in Quebec. He was head and shoulders above all the other businessmen here in Quebec. Between Power Corp and his increasing control over the Quebec media, some politicians were already talking about the Demarais state. A man by the name of Yves Michaud, who was a liberal stood up and made this speech. He said, this is terrible. It was control of information by one company and one man. It should not be tolerated. And that's where he used the term, the Desmarais state. Even back then, Paul Desmarais was flexing his political muscle. There's one sphere in particular that Desmarais was able to have considerable influence. Quebec sovereignty. His whole life, Paul Desmarais fought against Quebec independence at every turn. And he was very much opposed to their option for Canada, also because they were social democrats. And he did not like that. He wanted, you know, free capitalism. He was extremely conservative, very much against social progress. This is sometimes people say, well, he's a liberal. He was a liberal because of his politics with regards to Quebec. He saw that the liberals would be able to keep Quebec from separating Take, for example, the case of Daniel Johnson. Johnson was elected Premier of Quebec in 1966. He was inspired by some of these anti-colonial movements. He had this slogan, Equality for Quebec or Independence. It was the slogan on which he had been elected. René Lévesque had just left the Liberal Party of Quebec to join the independence movement, and Charles de Gaulle, the president of France, had come to Montreal and proclaimed, Long live a free Quebec. And listen to the shout. Quebec lead the separatist slogan. Vive le Canada français et vive la France! Long live French Canada and long live France. It looked as if the moment was with the sovereigntists. But then Premier Daniel Johnson fell ill. And then he briefly disappeared. When Daniel Johnson was not well and he had heart problems, he made a secret trip to Hawaii. And nobody knew where he was. But who was there with him? Paul Desmarais. And Desmarais managed at that time to sit Daniel Johnson down and write a letter or a, an article where he said there would be no Chinese wall around Quebec. This was presented as a scoop in his newspaper. 
Paul Desmarais had managed to elicit a deathbed conversion from the Premier of Quebec. It was an extraordinary display of power. But that was just the beginning. Paul Desmarais was winning friends and influencing people at every turn. Pierre Trudeau's run for the Liberal leadership began in the offices of Power Corporation. And he and Paul Desmarais would remain close friends throughout the rest of their lives. One of the men Trudeau beat for the leadership was Paul Martin Sr., and his campaign was run by his son, Paul Martin Jr., who would become prime minister in the 2000s. Well, right after Trudeau was elected head of, to be the leader of the Liberal Party, where do we find Paul Martin Jr., in other words, the one who became prime minister? He started working for Power Corp. Desmarais hired Paul Martin Jr. to be a corporate firefighter at Power Corp, jumping into trouble divisions to turn them around. And eventually, Desmarais sold Martin Canada Steamship Lines, one of the pillars of the company. That sale was shrouded in mystery, and Stephen Jaroslawski, the investor billionaire, once said that, quote, Obviously, the company was basically a semi-present. Desmarais could have taken it back any time he wanted. Paul Desmarais was fascinated by politics. He would almost have them in his pocket. When a politician loses, they're in the doldrums. They're looking for friends. So who calls them? Paul Desmarais and offers them a job. He knew that it paid to have friends among politicians. Desmarais met Brian Mulroney at a party in 1965, and the two quickly became lifelong friends. In the 1970s, Mulroney often did legal work for Power Corp. Desmarais helped bankroll Mulroney's run for the conservative leadership, and in turn, Mulroney would go on to appoint Desmarais' brother and brother-in-law to the Senate. And after he stepped down as PM, Mulroney went right back to working for Power Corp. Robert Barassa, who became Quebec Premier in 1970, would often just give Desmarais a call and ask him what he should do. Why were all of these politicians and future politicians all so close to Paul Desmarais? For one, he controlled the majority of the print media in the province. And he wasn't afraid to use it, especially in the fight against separatism. He perceived that what was going on in Quebec, and to a lesser extent outside Quebec, but mainly Quebec, was essentially a, a socialist revolution that was going on. And he said that these newspapers, having these newspapers, was his way of, of combating that. And then there was the money. Desmarais used his cash and influence to exert control over the Liberal Party of Quebec as well as other political institutions. At every turn, Paul Desmarais continued collecting politicians. He became close friends with Jean Chrétien, who eventually became family when Chrétien's daughter France married Paul's son André. Ontario Premier John Robarts joined the Power Corporation board after he left politics. So did his successor, Bill Davis. Bob Ray's brother, John Ray, was a Power Corporation vice president and one of Paul's closest advisors for decades. According to Robin Philpot, there were only two Quebec premiers who never ended up in Desmarais' orbit. René Lévesque and Jacques Parizeau, both sovereigntists. They were never in his, I would say, in his hand. They never ate out of his hand, which is one of the things that he didn't like. But as his power grew, so did suspicion amongst the Quebec public. And so here in Quebec... You could say people other than the business people really disliked him. There were often big demonstrations against him, against what he was doing. Although the business, so-called business community, were scared of him. He had the upper hand with him. But he, was, he played this, this role where uh, they wouldn't do anything without his approval. 
but his opposition to sovereignty made him enemies. In 1970, the FLQ, a separatist terrorist organization, kidnapped and murdered a Quebec deputy premier and kidnapped a British diplomat. Another bombing in Quebec. Another act by the FLQ. It was an intense, desperate campaign aimed at demolishing federal institutions and building Quebec nationalism. And Paul Desmarais was high on their list of other targets. Steinberg, Clark, Bronfman, Smith, Nepal, Timmons, Geoffrion, J.L. Lévesque, Urshorn, Thompson, Nesbitt, Desmarais, Kierens. He was provided government protection on direct orders from Pierre Trudeau and was able to evade capture. As Quebec politics roiled around him, Desmarais maintained his access to the corridors of power. And in return, the politicians got financial support for their campaigns and access to his unparalleled political network. And as he was exercising his influence in politics, Desmarais was also expanding his business empire. Even though he was one of the most influential people in Canada, his relationship with the Anglo business elite wasn't quite so cozy. You know, there was so much anti-French attitude among the businessmen, but they did see him as an upstart. And there are two major events where he came into conflict with the English-Canadian establishment. The first was in 1975 when he tried to take over Argus. Argus was in many ways the Toronto equivalent of Power Corporation, a holding company with interests in numerous important Canadian firms. Now, Argus was owned by uh, another blue-blood person who probably hung out at the Granite Club in Toronto, Bud McDougall. Conrad Black once said that Bud McDougall was, quote, a toady, a snob, a bigot, an elegant anachronism, and an unlearned reactionary. When Desmarais made a move to take control of Argus in 1975, he was stymied by the federal government. Trudeau must have gotten some calls from the Bay Street barons Bay Street businessmen saying, we can't allow this upstart. They was perceived as a nouveau riche, and there's no way he could break into this closed group of Anglo-Canadian businessmen based in Toronto. And so they set up this commission on the concentration of companies. Basically, it was an investigation to prevent Paul Desmarais from taking over Argus. Eventually, Argus would be sold to the aforementioned Conrad Black, who was both a friend and rival of Paul Desmarais. And when Desmarais tried to take over Canadian Pacific Railroad in the early 80s, the Anglo establishment frustrated his efforts once again. But you could see that he had a kind of relationship with Canadian business, which was rocky, uh, but he remained extremely loyal to Canada. In his long business career, these were two of his only major failures. But they were the beginning of a shift that would see Desmarais become influential not just in Canada, but across three different continents. By the 1980s, Paul Desmarais was thinking about succession, and he was determined to make sure Power Corp stayed within his family. He has two sons who are his, his successors, Paul Desmarais Jr. and André Desmarais. They like working out of the spotlight. And so we don't hear much of them now. Paul Desmarais assigned his sons to work on his two new big expansions, China and Europe. André Desmarais was given the Chinese file. In the 1970s, communist China was beginning to open itself up to the world. 
Pierre Trudeau visited the country in 1973, and diplomatic relations between Canada and China were reestablished. Beginning today, China is represented in Canada for the first time since Chairman Mao's regime came to power. Chargé d'affaires Xu Chengfu arrived in Ottawa with a delegation that will make arrangements for the setting up of a Chinese embassy. Many expected trade between the two countries to blossom, but little happened for years. And by 1978, Paul Desmarais decided to lead a trade mission of Canadian CEOs and academics to try to gin up some business with China. When asked why he was doing it, he replied, quote, What the hell? Why shouldn't I do it? We've got the leg up on the Americans. They visited Beijing, meeting with Chinese officials, visiting the Great Wall and Mao's mausoleum, and Desmarais got a private meeting with Yu Chiu Li, China's vice premier. But little came of that first meeting. It wasn't until a few years later that Power Corp got a meeting with Deng Xiaoping, the supreme leader of China itself. And they got the Chinese government to make their first ever investment outside of the country. They bought into a pulp mill in Castlegar, B.C. All of this led to the formation of the Canada-China Business Council, which to this day has been led by Power Corporation executives and the Demare family. Over the years, Canada's relationship with China has been mediated in large measure through the Demarais. John Manthorpe, in his recent book on Canada-China relations, tells the story of Raymond Chan, who became Secretary of State for Asia-Pacific Affairs when Jean Chrétien was elected PM. An official from the Department of Foreign Affairs mentioned to Chan that he should head over to Montreal and go see André Desmarais. So, he went down. And when he got there, André showed off Power Corp's opulent offices, including their collection of valuable art. But there was one painting that was different. André Desmarais told him that it was a gift from his friend, Li Peng, the Premier of China. That was the same man who had declared martial law and sent in the troops to kill and disperse the protesters at Tiananmen Square. For Raymond Chan, it must have been a chilling moment. Only a few years earlier, he had been deported from China for protesting on the first anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Manthorpe's source told him that, quote, We left that office feeling that we'd been told in no uncertain terms where Canada's China policy was made. Now think about that. He's saying that policy around one of Canada's most important bilateral relationships isn't being made in the PMO or the Department of Foreign Affairs. Instead, it's a family of businessmen that call the shots. Even today, the Canada-China Business Council is chaired by Paul Desmarais' grandson, Olivier Desmarais. Power Corp's other big expansion in the 80s was into Europe. He joined with a guy named Albert Frère in Belgium, who was a kind of a capitalist like himself, yet a capitalist who was much more into money and not into politics. Power Corp bought a stake in the prestigious French bank Paribas, and Desmarais was appointed to its board. And it was at that time that Paul Desmarais began to cultivate relationships with French presidents. First, it was the socialist president Francois Mitterrand. One of Mitterrand's first moves was to nationalize Paribas. And here we can really see Demare's power at work. Power Corp had received no compensation for their stake in the nationalized bank. And so what did Paul Demare do? He contacted his pal, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Here's a quote from Demare on the matter. Quote, 
I told Trudeau about it, and he invited me to come to Ottawa for a garden party held for the G7 heads of government. When I saw François Mitterrand, I told him we had been unjustly expropriated. Demarais and Mitterrand talked, and within two weeks, the French government paid Power Corp for their stake, all in cash and in U.S. dollars. But it was his relationship with another French president that would be even more consequential, Nicolas Sarkozy. The two became close in the 1990s, a decade before Sarkozy would reach France's highest office. And Sarkozy, had, he was basically on the outs. And when he was finally elected, the first person he thanked was Paul Desmarais. Sarkozy said, nobody even wanted to talk to me, but who invited me over to his domain, his estate in Quebec, was Paul Desmarais. And we went and talked, and he backed me. He backed me. And so he said, if there's somebody who owed his becoming president, it was to Paul Desmarais. So this opened the doors for Desmarais. And within a year... Paul Desmarais was given the Légion d'honneur, which is the highest distinction in France. Sarkozy would become the first French president to explicitly advocate that Quebec stay within Canada, a massive coup for federalism. And it was once again all thanks to Paul Desmarais. By this point, Paul Desmarais was pretty much done doing business in Canada. In fact, he had sold off most of his Canadian holdings by 1990, including Consolidated Bathurst, the pulp and paper company which had gotten government support for years. Every time there's an economic crisis, they would get help from the government to ensure that they could maintain employment, but the company would pocket all his money. But in 1989, Desmarais sold Consolidated Bathurst for something like $2.9 billion, which was the largest transaction in the history of Canada at the time. He took that money, and then everybody was saying, well, you're selling it off to the Americans. You better start investing in Quebec. But from 1989 on, the Desmarais invested everywhere but Quebec. They took the money and ran. All he kept were his media properties, which allowed him to maintain his influence as the independence debate once again raged in Quebec. Days before the 1995 Quebec referendum, Premier Jacques Parizeau made a speech condemning Paul Desmarais by name. He said, you know, we have a visit from China, and do the Chinese come and meet our Minister of Foreign Affairs or External Affairs for Quebec? Do they come and meet the Finance Minister? Do they come and meet the Premier? No, they go and meet in Paul Desmarais' office. But Parizeau and the sovereigntists lost the referendum, and Parizeau resigned. His successor, Lucien Bouchard, well, he'd been friends with Paul Desmarais back in the 1980s. They may have lost touch while fighting on opposite sides of the referendum, but with all that messiness out of the way, they quickly resumed their friendship. After the referendum, Desmarais started to sell off his media empire. But then when the independence movement seemed to... Uh suffer setback after setback from 1995 on, you'd almost think that they said, we don't need the media anymore, and we can go on making money the way we, we always have. In the years after the Quebec referendum, Paul Desmarais kept making big business moves abroad, but he was never quite done with Canadian politics. When Stephen Harper was elected in 2006, he was the first prime minister in a long time who didn't owe much of his success to the Demarais. So Paul, 
always the player, tried to boost up Bob Ray, his old friend, to be the liberal leader. But that didn't quite work out. When Paul Desmarais Sr. died in 2013, he was given the type of funeral that's usually reserved for heads of government. In Quebec City today, a moment of silence in the National Assembly, the Premier calling Desmarais an important business leader and patron of the arts. Much of the story of the last half-century of Canadian politics could be told through the life of Paul Desmarais. Since the 1960s, Desmarais has been close friends, family, or business partners with almost every major Canadian Prime Minister, Pearson, Trudeau, Mulroney, Chrétien, and Martin. He was close to multiple Ontario Premiers, most Quebec Premiers, various world leaders, and most of the Canadian elite. He was the fulcrum upon which Canada's relationship with France and China pivoted on, and though more than anyone else he had reaped the benefits of the quiet revolution and Quebec nationalism, he's one of the main reasons that Quebec today is not a sovereign nation. The Demarais are unlike many of the other dynasties we've covered. As far as anyone can tell, there's been no infighting, no succession battles. Instead, Power Corp is now being passed on to the third generation. But even now, questions about their influence in Quebec and Canadian politics still linger. In 2011, it was revealed that Michael Sabia, the head of Casta Depot, Quebec's public pension investor, stayed with the Demarais at Sagard. The next year, Jean Charest, the premier of Quebec, came under fire for doing the same thing the Conflict of Interest Commissioner refused to investigate. And just this October, an investigation by the Journal de Montréal revealed that Charest's former chief of staff told anti-corruption investigators that Charest was paid by a group of businessmen to run for the leadership of the Quebec Liberal Party in 1998. He was sat down by a number of leading businessmen, including Paul Desmarais, in 1998 and said... We're not going to back you as head of the Conservative Party. We're going to back you only if you go and become head of the Liberal Party in Quebec to save Canada. The evidence is becoming more and more available that they offered him um, a golden bridge, which would ensure that his kids would go to private school and that he would have money when he finished as head of the Liberal Party of Quebec. The allegations are unproven, and Charest denies them. But it's just another demonstration that even after his death, the ghost of Paul Desmarais continues to haunt Canadian politics. That's your episode of Commons for the week. 
This episode relied on reporting done by Robin Philpot, Dave Grieber, Peter C. Newman, Jonathan Manthorpe, Marcy McDonald, Martin Patroquin, Michel Vastel, Alec Costengui, Radio Canada, Le Journal de Montréal, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Canada Land Commons, that's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash canadaland.